I'm Emily Hawthorne, a Middle East and North Africa analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, our premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analyses. Individual team and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. Turkey is falling apart from a government standpoint. It's spiraling toward dictatorship and has done a really poor job cracking down on ISIS networks, even within Turkey's borders. Welcome to the Stratfor Pen and Sword Podcast. I'm Fred Burton. I'm here today with Mike Giglio, who has written Shatter the Nations, ISIS and the War for the Caliphate. Mike, welcome to Stratfor Pen and Sword Podcast. Thank you for having me. Mike, uh, in looking at your story, what was the most difficult part of putting this book together? For me, it was the reporting, really. You know, I really tried to focus on getting access to ISIS members as they, as they lived and, and worked, and also to the Iraqi and Kurdish forces who were fighting them as, as close as I could get to um, the actual battles themselves. So embedding I mean, attacking convoys um, that were pushing into ISIS territory much of the time. And to secure that kind of access you know, took a lot of effort um, and a lot of work. And so it was really just an exhaustive process of reporting it really over more than five years. And I see, Mike, clearly, uh, you know, I, I know being a former agent, you're, you're involved in very dangerous work here as a war correspondent. It was. It, it, it always felt worth it. I, I, I had a real sense of mission with this war in particular because I, it seemed to me that more than ever, Americans were considering themselves at war, but at the same time, very detached from it. And, and I think that's very alarming for us as a country. And so... I really wanted to, to bring home the story of who, who, who was this enemy that we were fighting on the one hand and, and really get to know them as people and not just sort of robotic enemies, which they're not. And then who, who are the soldiers, which mostly are local soldiers, who are, who are sacrificing in this war and, and why, why, why should Americans feel responsible for that? The why behind this, Mike, to me is – very powerful. Explain a little bit as to why you wanted to do this. I came of age during the Iraq War. I was a senior in high school when the Twin Towers fell. And I'm, I'm from Long Island, so my high school is about 20 miles from the World Trade Center. And I remember sitting in third period, and one by one, students whose parents had worked in the World Trade Center were called down to the principal office and, and being sent home early. But from there... My life sort of just went on as planned. I, I went to college, and I, I just I paid really just passing attention to the Afghanistan war and the Iraq war that followed. And I, as I put it in the book, to me and I think like to many Americans, the, the war was just a baseball game muted on a screen above a bar where I, you know, I was paying passing attention and I was rooting for the home team, and I really thought that that was all my country asked of me. And as I got older and as I, I sort of started grappling with what actually happened in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and, and the degree to which 
Americans being ta- detached from the political process and detached from foreign policy and detached from their own military played into those problems, I, I really started grappling with the, with the guilt there. And that drove me to go overseas and become a war correspondent. And I was on this mission just to, to sort of get as close to U.S. engagements as I could. And because of the nature of this war, like I mentioned earlier, I, I really felt that the, the message from the American government to Americans was, you are at war with ISIS, yet you, you are not really responsible for this war because locals are mostly carrying it out. We don't talk about civilian casualties. And I felt like that was really destructive. And, and, and so that really was kind of the driving force of my, of my work was to, to say, no, we are connected to these places and we need to grapple with what our military is doing and whether it's, in, in this case, mostly airstrikes and, and, and what local forces are doing on our behalf to, to fully understand our role in this war and, and what our responsibilities for it are. Well, I think you've touched on a very interesting aspect, Mike, because uh, I know in looking at the evolution of terror, and on my watch, we had this organization called the Islamic Jihad Organization. It took us forever to try to figure out who the heck they were, and we finally connected the dots to Hezbollah and ultimately an Iranian hand here. So with you putting a face to ISIS, in essence, that's what you've done with Shatter the Nations. What I tried to do, and and I think if we can recognize the humanity even in our worst enemies, even in a group like ISIS and members of a group like ISIS, it doesn't excuse at all what they did, but it does help us understand why they did it. And also, I, I think I think glimpsing the humanity in an ISIS member actually makes them more frightening in a way because it, it makes us confront a much more difficult reality, which is that someone can be living a relatively normal life like, like we are, and through a series of circumstances find themselves drawn down this path to committing these sort of really evil acts. Um, and, and, and I think, I, I think that that is a reality that people don't really want to grapple with. I think it's easier just to see them as stormtroopers, you know, faceless, uh, robotic villains who just sort of march forward without really thinking through what they're doing. And that's not the case at all. Um, and I also found it really instructive to meet ISIS members who had recently defected from the group, which is a big focus of the book, and, and speak with them about what was the mental process, first to getting drawn into ISIS, and then actually even more tortuous a lot of times to extracting yourself from that mindset and, and leaving the group. What do you think was the biggest uh, reason for why an individual would want to join ISIS? I think a lot of attention has been paid to foreign fighters and for good reason. And I, I think those people are a lot more at fault in what happened in Iraq and Syria. Like they, they willingly went to these places and, and tried to live out some sort of violent, almost naive vision of, of uh, what was being built as an Islamic state, which, as you know, is, is not at all one. The, the people I really focused on in the book and got to know really well were, were Syrian members of ISIS. And they tended to get drawn into the group just by nature of the desperation and the chaos of the civil war. And so you had some people joining ISIS for utility, and you had some people joining because they were radicalized by the extreme violence. And I really do think it's necessary to understand this aspect of ISIS, why Iraqis and Syrians would, would join it, in addition to the foreigners who came flocking 
to Iraq and Syria to really to really get a full picture of the group. When you look at an organization like ISIS, uh, where do you see their future? I think that they will be able to retain a core in Iraq, especially as well as Syria, because that's what they've done successfully in the past. ISIS is just the next iteration of Al Qaeda in Iraq, which was the enemy that the U.S. was fighting during the Iraq War. And at the end of the Iraq War, the U.S. and its allies in Iraq had managed to really suppress Al Qaeda, not quite eradicate it. And when America left, they were able to survive underground as an insurgency by their time and regroup. And I, I think ISIS will be able to do that again. Not, not to say necessarily they'll, they'll make another land grab. I think they may have learned their lesson in that respect, that if they take territory, the United States can take it back, can bomb them, can organize local troops to, to fight them. But I do think that they're able to survive in the near and medium term at least. And I think they have a very generational strategy, a very long-term vision that they can wait out their enemies and, and win a, a war of attrition over time. And then connected to that is the fact that ISIS has members and supporters and affiliates all over the world now. Right. And so I think this core in Iraq and Syria, again, Iraq especially, will be able to maintain some connection to that global network. And so remain a threat in, in that way, not so much uh, as a so-called caliphate. Well, in fairness to our counterterrorism strategy, I think our special forces and the CIA and the, and the allied efforts to, to target ISIS has been pretty successful in unpacking the organization. Would you agree or disagree? I think the so-called by, with, and through strategy in which America relied on these local forces and really put together a, a pretty improbable coalition of Iraqis, Syrians, and Kurds to fight ISIS was extremely successful. And that effort was enabled quite a bit by U.S. diplomacy on the one hand and by U.S. special operations forces and special forces on the other to work with these local forces. And the book really explains that strategy and why I think it was so unique and successful and, and perhaps even put forward a vision for the way America can engage militarily in the future in the, in the region. But I do want to emphasize that the the overall struggle against ISIS is not necessarily in the hands of intelligence and special operations. It's in, hands, it's in the hands of the U.S. government and the top-level strategy. And I think as a, as a country, we, we have this tendency to do all the bombing, do all the fighting, and then not win the peace. And that's what I think is at risk right now in Iraq and Syria, and that might be out of the hands of, of special operators or the Green Berets or the, or the CIA. Mike, hold that thought. We'll be right back. We'll get back to our conversations in just a minute, but I wanted to talk to you first about Stratfor Worldview. When people ask me what we do here at Stratfor, I always try to say that we make sense of the world. Uh, look, I've been here now going on almost 20 years, and I've had lots of opportunities to go elsewhere. I've uh, been lucky enough to have cobbled together a few books, but I can say this, that when I sit around the analyst table every morning and watch uh, some of our analysis being put together, I think people uh, would be surprised. And I think that for those of you who really want to see why uh, the world works the way it does, uh, without the bias, without the spin, without the inside the beltway kind of uh, takeaways, uh, I would encourage you to take a look at what we do. Let me make you a special offer. Go to stratfor.com slash Fred Burton. 
and take a look at what we do every day. I don't think you'll be disappointed. So what you're saying is that the policymakers or the strategy at the highest levels of the U.S. government, which would probably come from either the Oval Office or the National Security Council, one or the other, that they're the ones that are going to be calling this shot as we go forth on ISIS, correct? That's right. Obviously, we all are aware of the the problems with Trump's very hasty withdrawal order and, and the chaos of that has caused in, in Syria recently. But just to give a different example of what I mean by U.S. policy not being adequate, the focus from the top levels of the U.S. government not being adequate, I saw a report last week from Mosul that more than two years after the Iraqi government declared victory over ISIS, they are still pulling bodies from the rubble of U.S. strikes. If America was really concerned about stabilizing Iraq and rebuilding to the point where the Iraqi government could maintain effective control over the areas that ISIS had taken and the security forces could really keep a lasting peace, would that be happening? I mean, to me, it's just unconscionable. And I think that really shows the the lack of focus on the post-war part of this in a really grim level. Yeah, and when you think about it in that context, I, I don't disagree with you. Having said that, when you look at an organization, I think most Americans that are not as well-versed as you are about this would pretty much say, well, isn't it the CIA's or the Special Forces' job to, to hunt down ISIS and um, neutralize them so we can't have uh, another 9-11 happening on U.S. soil? I, I think to put that much of a burden on our intelligence services and special forces is not responsible. So it is their job to, to track down terrorist networks, and they do do that job. But I do think the U.S. government writ large is responsible for making the environment as amenable to, to success as possible. And leading destruction and unrest in these places where ISIS was so strong just really makes the job tougher and perhaps unmanageable in the long term. And I would just say, too, the, the protagonists of the book are the Iraqi and Kurdish commando units that were stood up by the Green Berets and the Delta Force and other special operators who have fought alongside U.S. Special Operations Forces and are really the, were the, the tip of the spear for the by, with, and through campaign for the war against ISIS and, and the most important element. And these are the forces that, that needed to conduct the bulk, I would say, of those missions that you described, that you're saying the CIA and U.S. military should be doing, of rooting out ISIS networks. The idea was that these counterterrorism units, some of which have been working with the U.S. for more than a decade, right. should, should really shoulder the brunt of that. And what has happened in, in the war, and why, why I say ISIS considers it a war of attrition, these forces took just amazing amounts of casualties. I really spent most of my time in Mosul, for example, with a battalion called the Iraqi Counterterrorism Force, which is the most elite unit of soldiers in Iraq, and we're the tip of the spear into, into Mosul and Anbar and other places that were taken back from ISIS. By the time they got into eastern Mosul and secured that part of the city, which was the first part of that battle, I remember calling back to uh, a source in Congress who had served in the U.S. military and was tracking the battle and talking with him about the casualties this unit was taking. And he told me that they had taken so many casualties already that if they were a U.S. unit, they would have been considered combat ineffective and pulled from the front lines months prior. And so that's the state that these units have been left in. And for me, as I understood the, the, the battle in Mosul and in Raqqa, ISIS understood relatively early on it was going to keep these cities. It was one day going to lose them. 
what it wanted to do was make these battles as deadly as possible for especially these counterterrorism units and soldiers who fought on the U.S. side with an eye to this long-term strategy of survival. And, and, and that, to me, was always a suspense of the war and what I, what I try to get across in, in the book. Mike, when you look at an organization like ISIS uh, that has the, the ability to operate uh, elsewhere, if you had to set back and had a crystal ball and forecast – where would be the likely venues for ISIS to pop up around the globe and perhaps carry out uh, some sort of terrorist attack? For me, because, because my focus has been so much centered on Turkey, Iraq, and Syria, I was based for five years in Istanbul covering this conflict and, and did most of my work either in southern Turkey on the border with Syria or in Syria or in Iraq. I really want to stress that these places are still the most likely places for ISIS to remain strong. The Iraqi government is teetering right now. There are, there are protests shaking the country. It's responding violently. That sort of instability is really problematic if you think about an ISIS resurgence. What's, what's being left behind in Syria, where various uh, countries, Turkey, Russia, Syria, are taking more and more control, each of these countries has a really checkered path when it comes to fighting ISIS. Really, it's never been their priority. That is really alarming to me. And then, like I said, Turkey is falling apart from a government standpoint. It's spiraling toward dictatorship and has done a really poor job in cracking down on ISIS networks, even in, within Turkey's borders. That provides the gateway for ISIS to the rest of the world, and, and it has for years. And I see really no indication that, that Turkey has been successful at stopping this. And so I think the, where the problem has been in the past is where the main problem will continue to be in, in the near term. Do you look at that from – and you're painting a fairly bleak picture there. When you look at this challenge, is this a 10-year, 20-year challenge for uh, the United States or, or is there even a way to predict this? I, I just want to say I understand that it's bleak what I'm saying. I, I do think I, I should then acknowledge that it is a success that ISIS no longer holds territory and can claim to be a caliphate and that Baghdadi is dead and that was the caliph as he declared himself. This, this is a major success. So I think what's important is to recognize that this is a success and to feel like actually a good U.S. strategy can bring good results and to then acknowledge what these problems are that I've laid out. And I, I think I should only really talk about the near term. I, I, I don't know how confident I am in my own ability to see past that. But I do think in the near term, these places remain a problem. And where U.S. policy should focus is on remembering that it has had success in the past when it really put the effort into, into its strategy and, and, and in trying to, to address the problems that I laid out. I, I do think it's. I do think the U.S. is capable of addressing them. I just. I just don't think it's making the effort right now. That's very interesting. And uh, as you and I know that we have uh, a presidential election looming, and you know I've lived through uh, administration changes, both Republican and Democratic, when I was uh, in the government. This kind of strategy could shift uh, very quickly if you have. Uh, uh, a new uh, NSC in the office, new uh, president in the Oval Office, and so forth. Uh, and, and where does that leave uh, units like the, uh, the Iraqi CT forces? I, it, it's really an open question to me what a new government would do in Iraq and Syria 
and also what the Trump administration will do in Iraq and Syria. I think even within the time that Trump has been in office, the, the strategy has been adrift in these places. And, and I agree with you that the lack of consistency in U.S. foreign policy and, and also the, the fact that even foreign policy has somehow become a partisan issue in an extreme way is really problematic in trying to address what are longer-term problems in the Middle East and, and elsewhere. Yeah, without a doubt. And this is a challenge that has faced our nation uh, for many, for many, many years. Uh, Mike, uh, what's on the horizon for you? I live now in Washington, D.C., and I just started this new job at The Atlantic, and I have a completely new beat, which is intelligence. So I will be taking my time and, and learning the beat and trying to meet sources around D.C. and elsewhere and, uh, and really just looking forward to trying to find ways to cover America now and, and, and American intelligence services, which I, I do think, you know, as this conversation shows, I, I think the world of intelligence in terms of the way the U.S. addresses problems and conflicts overseas is an endlessly fascinating space and, and, and really the most important way, I think, to understand the way American influence uh, is projected abroad right now. So no new books? <laughs> you know, after after all the uh, effort to turn this one out, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to enjoy just being a reporter again for a while. I understand. Well, well, thank you, Mike Giglio, for being on the Stratfor Pen and Sword podcast. And for our listeners, uh, please pick up a copy of Shatter the Nations, ISIS and the War for the Caliphate. Thank you for having me. You can learn more about Mike Giglio's book, Shatter the Nations, ISIS and the War for the Caliphate, by reading our program notes. And if you have any comments or thoughts about our podcast, please reach out to podcast at stratfor.com. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening.